This show is brought to you by Brain First Training Institute, ICF accredited coach certifications and applied neuroscience training. To become a brain-based coach, get certified in applied neuroscience and stay up to date with what's happening in the world of applied neuroscience and coaching, join our Brain First community over at brainfirsttraininginstitute.com. Hey, it's Ramon and welcome to Brain Coach Radio, where we hear from expert coaches, leaders and trainers who are using applied neuroscience to help their clients get life-changing results. We discuss various coaching topics, neuroscience insights, business tips and much more, all to help you succeed. Now, let's get into the episode. No interruptions. Enjoy, my friends. Jen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Great to see you. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So let's talk about coaching. How did you get into coaching? Um, I would say it's probably not an untypical path for the type of coaching that I do, right? So um, my past is from the world of um, training and development. So um, started as a classroom facilitator, new hire on the on the job trainer sort of work, and then got into facilitating more um, leadership programs and more um, self-development programs, whether it was assertiveness or stress management or presentation skills, things like that. And um, oftentimes, especially like around presentation skills or things to that um, sort of bend, we would get requests from class participants to say, could you help me specifically? And so it was, I started doing coaching in very specific sort of skill-based experiences, right? Giving really dialed in feedback to help someone from a professional perspective um, to get better at a skill. Then I added in what is a logical next step, which is 360 coaching. And so it's just that understanding of the information and the data, making meaning of it, and then helping them get through. And I would say the the art in those is helping them get through the emotions that come um, from asking people to tell you how they think you're doing, right? That's a pretty, um, pretty vulnerable place for a leader to put them in. So the majority of my, my work and my coaching is all in the leadership space, typically connected into folks through the workplace. Um, but that's, that's kind of where I started. What, why don't we go back a little bit before the coaching component then? How did you get into this line of work? What was it that fascinated um, you about this or were you curious about? How did you, how did you, how did you get into it? How did you fall into it? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think I'd always had just a little bit of that sort of trainer educator bent, but I knew I didn't want to necessarily work with a room full of kids, um, don't have the patience there. Um, and so I was working for a big financial services firm. And when they hired me, they had a very structured, um, first two week experience, right. From new employee orientation through how to do your job, how to interact with the computer system, how to do the work that you were being hired to do. And I kept watching these people who were teaching me thinking, that's a job, like that's a whole gig. Um, And so I sort of had a lean towards that. And I actually had a very influential boss, my first boss in that organization, who within six months of being there said, where do you want to go from here? Right? Like she was 100% dialed in on employee development. And I said, well, I want to do that, right? I want to do, I want to be that on the job trainer. I want to be that first contact point for new employees and help them get started, get their feet under them. And so she just started, she sort of started farming me out. Um, If another team had a newer member that needed some support, she's like, gentle help, gentle help. And um, so she really helped me see that I could get into that kind of work. So that was the very sort of beginnings of my path into um, training and development. And I worked in that um, financial services firm for 15 years and 13 of them, I was in training and employee development. Mm, Okay. And what, what was the next step after that? So what is 15 years and then. Yeah. Then I went to work for an employer's association. So it's a small human resource focused um, consulting firm And I was in the employee development group. And so I taught 
all sorts of classes to people from lots of different um, organizations and um, got into doing a, a fair amount of front of the room, 30 to 60 people in the room sort of space, supervisory skills, leadership skills, conflict resolution. And in that environment was able to get um, credentialed as a mediator and stepping into those, um, you know, situations where two people can't play nice in the sandbox anymore and a third person is brought in to help. Um, So did some mediation and started doing a lot of facilitation. And that's where I really started getting my feet with. And I had colleagues who were credentialed coaches and I would look at them and say, I don't don't think I'm ready for that. I don't think I'm, I don't know if I have the bent to that. I'm going to do mediation. That feels more solid and tactical and short term, right? Like, cause you're with the mediator mediation session for a finite period of time. I thought, God, coaching could take forever. I don't know if I want to do that. So I was very, um, I was very hesitant because it felt like a really big responsibility to Mm -hmm. step into the coaching world. And, um, I wasn't sure that that was the world for me. What was it that tipped you over the edge? into that uh, just deciding okay let's have a go let's let's check it out i think it was how frequently i would reflect on conversations and realize i had been coaching uh, um yeah. and and doing it without necessarily a, a structure or a process you know doing it instinctively and <clears throat> i tell my leaders all the time i don't want you to be instinctive i want you to be intentional so i was like um hello if you're going to do this, you need to be intentional. So yeah. that's what tipped me over into to looking to to formalize this for myself. Yeah. What uh, What are some of the things? So when we're looking at, uh, say, for example, employee development for someone who, in fact, I had a, an interesting conversation with someone this morning who's thinking about going into uh, coaching. Not sure whether they want to develop a coaching business where they work with people one-on-one or go into organizations. Uh, there's so many different ways in which coaching can be applied, particularly within organizations. Employee development. For someone who is just new to all of this, they're wanting to work within an organization. Maybe they don't want to necessarily do, you know, the well-being, uh, the well-being, corporate well-being route mm-hmm. within the organization. Maybe they've come across employee development. What is it? What is it about? What are the things that you're doing like on a day-to-day basis? How are you bringing coaching into this? Just kind of fill the picture in a little bit more for for people, if you would, please. So for me right now, coaching in my day-to-day world is part of um, leadership development programming. So as my role as the um, leadership development manager, we have created a curriculum to um, help to build skill and awareness for our leaders around a set of competencies that we've identified make for successful leaders in our organization. And the um, coaching component in that program is a um, it's a piece. It's one of the modes of helping to build that behavior change or build that development because it gives each individual an opportunity to customize where they want to spend their development efforts. And I think that's really important when you're looking at professional um, development in an employment setting. People don't have just loads and scads of discretionary time Mm. to spend on professional development, right? They are likely developing with a specific end in mind. It could be a next role. It could be a new role, right? They might be new to a role and they need to get their feet under them, or it could be a role that they're looking for, or it could be something is going on in their team or the way that they're working with their boss or their peers that they don't like. Um, So they want to figure out how to stop that from happening or something isn't happening that they want to start happening, right? So um, the coaching is, is, often very focused and tactical. It's, um, I would say to, to compare to say the life coach or the wellness coach or things like that. It's very, um, I would say it's probably shorter in duration because it is so focused. Mm. Um, and I often find that people come in with one idea of what they think they want to work on. And then they're like, and they, 
realize, oh, actually what's really getting my way is this. And so yeah. it takes a little while um, because the, the professional coaching environment in employee development, um, I think sometimes they feel very detached from emotion. Like they don't want to talk about the things that are hard or frustrating or scary. And so it takes a little while to get them to a place where they can recognize how they're getting in their own way because they want to stay in that sort of safe work safe type language as they initially ask for support. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's go there. Emotions. In fact, uh, another question first, how much of what you do is training versus coaching? And if we include teaching, advising, consulting, mentoring in the training category, how much of, how much of what you do is the process of coaching versus some form of training, educating, so on? Um, right now, the mix is probably about 70-30, um, 70 on the facilitating, training, administering, and mentoring um, around the, the program, and um, probably about 30% um, coaching. Majority of those experiences currently, and it kind of depends on where we are with the programming that we're running. But right now, a lot of it is on um, 360 experiences. And so helping people to get through that process. And that's where the emotion comes up most often. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. For for many people, they've never done a 360 before. Yeah. Um, and they've probably never had a coach before, at least in my organization. It's um, coaching is still um, getting its feet under it as um, a tool for development We've done a great job, I think, um, because we're sort of starting from scratch. We haven't had to overcome what I would call the misuse of the term coaching. So coaching yeah. isn't prescribed to fix someone. Um, we don't call performance conversations a coaching. All of those things, when I walk into organizations and those exist, you're doing so much work to get rid of that reputation yeah. Um, that can be really challenging. So we're yeah. lucky in that we're sort of starting from zero and there's just not a lot of history with coaching at all. So um, we're, we're breaking ground there. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you still see it everywhere, don't you? Even, uh, I mean, I'll see it mostly in the business coaching space when actually someone has a course on how to do marketing Here's 17 steps you're going to follow and I'm your coach. Right. It just it it uh, I don't know. I think are we are we getting somewhere with I don't know. Maybe the ICF is probably driving a lot of this, but maybe the in terms of changing the culture. Do you think we're getting somewhere with changing people's perception of what coaching actually is—the process of coaching versus what you know people calling themselves coaches and just doing whatever they feel like doing? I think I think first we had to bring up an awareness of what coaching is and how it can be helpful. And I think if you have a few good stories in an organization where someone can say, I worked with a coach and this is how it helped me, that's a big plus. Um, from the coaching industry, I think awareness of coaching and the fact that there is rigor behind becoming a coach is increasing. There's yeah. more awareness. Um, and part of that, I think, is from some of these organizations that are working to what they call democratize coaching, because for so many years, coaching was seen as for the top level of an organization. It's the only people who got executive coaches, right? You must be an executive in order to be able to um, be worthy of coaching. <laughs> um, yeah. And so you get these organizations that have gone to digital platforms and they've made connecting with a coach as easy as a FaceTime call, things like that. And their whole push is let's make it easy access. It doesn't have to be face-to-face. -face. You don't have to go to a coach's office, right? Which often felt like a therapist session. Um, mm. And we can push it into the organization. We can scale it. And make it cost effective so that cost isn't a barrier to offering it when it's the right intervention. I think sometimes the pendulum swings and they're giving it to everybody and nobody knows what to do with it, or they don't know why they're being provided this opportunity. So they don't take advantage of it. So I think there's still, there's still a sweet spot for the, 
for the intervention? Why is it being offered? What is the benefit of doing it? How do we see that this could help you? And why would we choose you to offer it to? If that kind of um, sort of setup for the experience isn't there, then I think sometimes people just, they don't take advantage of it. They don't use it in its fullest extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, so much of this is definitely, at least uh, in my experience and the way I'm seeing it, is driven by organizations uh, i'm reminded of uh, i guess probably three maybe four maybe even five years ago i think most of our students at brain first would have come in for the neuroscience because they're building a coaching business you know one-on-one health coach life coach business coach whatever now it's probably more like 50 percent internal coaches or coaches who have a contract to an organization and they want particularly the ICF is a, um, a re- often a requirement. So mm-hmm. even in three, four, five years, now maybe that's not representative of what's going on in the industry. Maybe that's just uh, the, the way that we've been positioned and what people are attracted to. So of course there's that, there's that um, part of it. It may not be representative of exactly what's going on in the industry, but certainly it's one example, and I've seen other examples too of uh, many of my peers and colleagues who are like, oh, we've had this company reach out and this company's in real estate and they want to bring a coaching program in, whether it's wellness coaching or leadership coaching or something else. And you'd think, wow, like that's something that I never would have thought of 10 years ago, or maybe even five years ago, a real estate organization bringing in, you know, you know I, a coaching program. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder too. There was a a show on Showtime um, that was quite popular called Billions. Billions. (laughs) You remember? And they have a performance coach on staff. What a great character. (laughs) Such, I mean, doesn't necessarily do a lot of great work for the coaching industry, but I actually know of coaches who have been hired inside because the CEO was like, I want to have somebody like that from Billions. That is so cool. <laughs> so cool. One thing I did love about yeah, super interesting. Well, I, I one thing I loved about that show is that they actually did. It felt like they did a lot of research on what, uh, not not just what how an organization like that is run, but the coaching component, the culture, the like. It seemed like they really had their finger on the pulse with this show. And yeah. some very modern ideas and themes and things that were circulating in the culture, very relevant, even going from one season to the next with the changes mm-hmm. we've had over the last few years. Like, very yeah, cool. Very like, much of the moment. Very much. Yeah. I, I want to go back to the, the 360 and the emotions. So can you paint the picture for us? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so just to to sort of clarify, when we talk about 360, sometimes that's not, that's a bit of a jargon term. So it is a feedback gathering process where an individual um, will will invite people within their scope to provide feedback to them. Typically, there is an external assessment tool that's used, and it's typically going to be, how am I doing on a particular set of behaviors, typically leadership behaviors? So we call it 360 because I will assess myself. I will invite my direct manager to assess. I might invite my manager's manager. So we get the up perspective. I will invite my direct reports to give me feedback. And I will invite my peers or potentially customers or other project team members. So you get a full circle perspective of how you show up as a leader. So, and you have that opportunity to compare what you believe you're doing versus what they're, they believe you're doing. And the other value that comes from a 360 is you slice it by those different perspectives. So as am I showing up differently with my peers than I am with my direct reports? Um, Or am I showing up differently when I'm on project teams than I am when I'm the leader of a team? Um, So you get a chance to compare and make choices about, um, okay, so I do show up differently with my peers and my direct reports. Is that what I want? Is that appropriate? is that um, getting me the output that I want, right? And um, so 
it's a it's a formalized process. And for us, when we um, kick this process off, we do a fair amount of um, setting up the participant who is who will be the subject of the feedback to help them understand what is this going to be like. Because for the most of them, this is the first time they've ever done this. How to select raters, individuals that will give them feedback so that they get good, robust feedback. We don't want them to just get, oh, you're great. We want them to get, you're great at this and you've got some room to grow here, right? Or we want them to get really specific examples. You were great when you did this in this context um, and you should do it in other contexts, right? So we give them advice on how to select their raters to get the most actionable, meaningful feedback possible. And then we do some work with them when we are getting ready to start doing the debriefs. And the debrief sessions are where they are going to get this report. Um, the ones that we have are generally about 50 pages long. Wow. <laughs> um, and helping them to understand their perspective and really be able to get in and dig into the data to compare how did you believe you show up doing this behavior? How does your boss, how does how do all these other perspectives, where are their blind spots? Where are their hidden strengths, right? And we try to get them ready for that conversation by really doing um, sort of a, a an overview and an expectation setting. We want them to know that it is very likely this is going to be um, an emotional experience. And mm. I've had people say, are you setting us up? Like, are you telling me I'm going to cry? And I'm like, no, but you could. <laughs> it has happened once or twice, but we try to let them know that an emotional reaction to this data is very, very common. And so mm -hmm. it's a, it's a very vulnerable practice to reach out to all of these people in your professional environment and to ask them to tell you how you're doing, right? It is not something that people do typically more than two or three times in a whole career. Yeah. So being the subject of a 360 is an act of courage. I always say to, to the people that are in the process, um, taking this on and being willing to say yes to this practice takes courage. So we just try to help them recognize they could have an emotional reaction um, that there are some things that we can do to help dissipate that. And I think sometimes just letting them know ahead of time what they might need to expect helps to sort of um, lessen their resistance, like get in and feel it. And then we can figure out what's going on and why, why are you having the reaction that you're having and what do you want to do now that you have this data? So um, yeah, that's, we talk about Sarah. Have you ever heard of this as a the feedback, four stages of feedback? It's, it's no. kind of like the four stages of grief, but it has a cute acronym. Yep. Yep. Okay. So we, the first stage is surprise, right? You might be like, yeah. I can't believe they said that. And it could be a good <laughs> surprise <laughs> or yeah. maybe not so good surprise. So there's surprise. There's anger, of course. I can't believe it. Why did they say that? And often what you'll see is anger is where they try to figure out who said what. And mm. when you're coaching around a 360, sort of like your mantra is, it doesn't matter who said it, what matters is what they said and what do we want to do about it? So unhooking them from the anger and trying to figure out, mostly they're trying to justify, oh, they said that because they're mad at me from this you know, performance evaluation or whatever. So- we try to unhook the anger, but they may also say, don't they realize I've been working so hard at this and I'm so much better now than I used to be. <laughs> um, and they're Depending still saying themselves. I have to work on it. That can create, yeah. that can create it. Um, the R in Sarah is rejection. Um, they can feel like, you know, very um, put on. And one of the other points in coaching around a 360 is to try to help the individual look at both sides that yes, there are areas to develop, but there are also strengths that you should be leveraging. And as human beings, we tend to look at the areas for development. So my job as a coach is to say, okay, those are the things you want to work on. Now, how are you going to leverage your strengths? 
What are you noticing? Where can you get more bang for the buck? How do you magnify that? So rejection is the R and then acceptance, right? Okay. They said it. I've heard it before. I'm working on it or wow, this is, I've never heard this before. I got to think about what to do about it. So. Yeah. I'm reminded of uh, the first uh, neuroscience research project I ever did. And uh, it was for my master's degree. And I remember, I remember, (laughs) I remember the university saying, look, you're going to get some feedback on your research. The, this first round before we need to tidy it up and then submit it uh, um, formally. Uh, it can be brutal, <laughs> just warning you now, but it is meant to help you and yada, 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 and all the rest of it. And I remember thinking, oh, man, how bad can it be? Like, surely like, it's not, <laughs> you know, it, they're going to be objective. It's, there's no personal attacks here. I'm sure it'll be fine. And, of course, I start reading through the feedback. and. You know, the first part of it, that's not too bad. And then I don't, I don't, I still don't know what it is because you can even come in with this mindset of like, this is objective. It's meant to help me. I'm going to take this and make it better and improve it. This is my first research study. I'm still learning about how to apply uh, research methods and everything else. But there's something in that. And maybe it's, you know, from the neuroscience, it activates uh, the, the threat response. Is it a threat to significance or status or what you, a part of your identity, what you feel that you know and that you're competent in and that is maybe even to some degree you're proud of certain skills and they come in and just knock you down, (laughs) rip it right out. (laughs) Whatever it is, it's like, oh, yeah. And But even having that mindset or mental framework coming in of like, yeah, this is objective. It's meant to help me and all the rest of it may mitigate that to some extent but oh god that uh that real somatic visceral probably some sort of you know primal primitive part of our nervous system that just goes no (laughs) i don't like this (laughs) yeah but well um, because you're so attached to that too the you know i've been working to be a better leader this is really important to me and now i'm getting feedback that says i'm still not quite hitting the mark that's really hard that's if especially when you have dedicated people leaders who recognize how important it is to be good at that work and when they get this document and sometimes i think 50 pages you're like oh you're just getting slammed with it page after page um you know and sometimes you're like okay i can take a little bite of it which is Honestly, why in in my practice now, I send the report to the individual only 24 hours before we debrief. Mm -hmm. I don't want to give them a lot of time to go down rabbit holes and to start picking to the little granular piece of data. I just want it to wash over them and to just talk first about what are those first impressions? How does this feel? Where are you and how deep do you want to get into this as we as we sit down to start making sense and making meaning of this? And and that's where I start all of my first debrief conversations. Where are you and how much time have you spent with this and what what do you want to tackle first? And try to really make it coachy led, right? Like mm-hmm. the participant mm-hmm. says, well, there's a lot of stuff I already knew and that's great. And it's good recognition and good reminding. And there's a few things I don't understand and I want to dig into deeper. So that that's to me, the most healthy sort of response. Um, I have some folks who are like, I didn't even want to look at it until we talked. <laughs> Cause yeah, they're, yeah, they're yeah. scared and they're nervous. Um, you know, and then it always goes to the place of the confidentiality, especially in working environments, who else is going to see this? Um, Who's, you know, the company paid for this. What happens? The company pays you, obviously, where we work for the same company. So it's getting to that place of the ethical perspective. When I became certified in this 360 tool, I agreed to not share this data with anyone other than the subject of the assessment. It is their data and I don't care who paid for it. And I've had lots of opportunities (laughs) to hold strong to that perspective, but that is that is part of who I am as a coach and what I've agreed to as the integrity of the conversation. So um, 
it's not always easy for the companies like, but we paid for it. The HR person should be able to see it. Well, they don't know how to work with it. So no, they don't get to see it. Yeah. Where does, uh, where do you bring the neuroscience into this process? How does it inform your approach? I think thinking about those social threats and the, the status and the certainty, certainly relatedness, not quite as much, but um, the, the certainty, the fairness, those sorts of triggers, um, knowing that those are buttons that can get pushed shapes the way we've designed our overview um, session where we set folks up prior to them receiving their feedback. Um, there's been, a, I think, a lot of opportunity for us there to really think about um, how do we create um, an awareness that, you know, what could what could be the reaction and how do we try to prepare them ahead of time for it? So I would say it's um, it's done as sort of our underpinning of that process as opposed to right in their face, right? Yeah. Your amygdala is going to get hijacked and you're not going to be able to do this. But yeah. in, in with my particular audience and with the organization that I currently work for, for me, the neuroscience is a good um, doorway into being able to coach and to, and to connect to them because these are scientists. They are rocket scientists. They are mm. incredibly analytical, data-driven t- people. And so being able to speak to you know, we're going to do this technique because it's going to help your brain get you in a place where you can take this information in. Um, That is more available to my particular audience than to just say, let's get in touch with what's going on, right? If I stay on the sort of coach emotional awareness side of things, I would not have as great of um, reception to the data and reception to the technique. They need to know it's grounded in something real. Yeah, yeah, and I think that is one of the many benefits of of drawing on a hard science is we have brain parts and we have nervous system, we have fight or flight response, and even right. as you mentioned, the the social threats. We all know what it feels like when something is unfair. Yeah, right. And then to have the data to be able to support that, uh, and I love what you you said about using this up front to. I guess, mitigate some of the threats, the social threats that people are going to experience when they're getting that feedback. Yeah, what, I think um, what it, it helps them to not be surprised by it, right? Yeah. Because these are people, some of them, leaders in this field, you know, setting groundbreaking, <laughs> um, you know, paths forward and designing machines that have never been created before. They're not used to being surprised. They're not Mm. used to feeling like they don't know something. Um, And so helping them to just be aware this could happen. um, And here's what's going on underneath it uh, gives them the opportunity to be more of an engaged observer as opposed to being grabbed by it and then being subject to that emotional reaction. They can, they can look at it and go, Oh, Jen said this might happen and we're going to work through this together. So I'm not going to throw my defenses up and say, this was, you know, an, uh, illogical or, you know, this is parlor tricks or whatever. They're not going to blow off the assessment and the data because they're having an emotional reaction. And Mm -hmm. I do have very analytical individuals in this organization mm-hmm. where if you can't say here's the test re- test reliability here's all of yeah. those sorts of statistical yeah. analysis behind things they're like yeah this is as this is as you know valid as a Ouija board and I, yeah. so you've got to have some of that solid rock star scientific stuff behind what you're asking them to believe and they're quite receptive to that then yeah, they're they're far more open to have the conversation and to be willing to look at themselves through the lens as opposed to just saying you you don't really know what you're talking about. You don't have 87 different degrees like I do <laughs> and patents yeah. and all of you know all of this stuff. You haven't spoken at the UN. So, um it gives me the opportunity to create something that they can believe in that is solid and real and science based that they um 
are more likely to agree to. And so it opens the door. It makes them willing to have the conversation. I, I, I really want to talk about this idea of coaches coaching other individuals who are, in this case, they're not just experts. They're like world-class experts, 87 degrees, whatever it is. Right. right? Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about this idea of, I think for many coaches, it's this idea of, oh, well, I don't, I don't feel I know enough or they're far more of an expert than me. And of course, those of us that know and understand the process of coaching, we don't need to be the expert. But I know many coaches still struggle to overcome that idea that oh, this person is an authority. They're an expert. They really know. And of course, uh, there's even some literature to support that. But people who are experts or authorities in one domain, we naturally feel that they're going to be an expert or an, or an authority in every domain to some degree. We have a slight bias towards that as human beings. So how do we overcome for coaches who, who struggle with this, wrestle with this idea of how do I possibly coach someone who's at that level, who has that status, who has that authority? You know, I think about, and this is a little bit of a backwards way to answer that question, but I think a little bit about when I'm talking with these folks and they're looking at selecting a coach, what guidance could I give them on selecting a coach? And they'll say, should I get someone who's done work or has a background similar to me or, or very different, right? So if I'm in the, the finance organization, should I get someone who's been a CFO in the past? Or um, if I've, if I'm working for the department of defense, should I get someone who came from the military? Um, And I think sometimes people like to have a coach that has a similar background because there's a shorthand to the conversation. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be able to identify the situation and the context easier and speak to that person in their own language. But there's such value in getting somebody who has an outsider perspective and is just there to learn about you in your context um, and they don't come in with any preconceived notions, right? I've mm-hmm. seen coaches who come from strong military backgrounds and I have, I have leaders who have military backgrounds and they are, they're drawn to them, but it doesn't always work. And sometimes those are the folks who come to me and say, I think I want to switch my coach because there is a preconception of how you should show up. If you had had that particular rank or that particular experience, mm-hmm. or you're from that mm-hmm. particular um, branch of service. So when I think about from a coach's perspective, I think you really have to think about what's your value that you bring to the conversation and the expertise you own as a coach. They're coming to us because there's a gap that they don't know how to fill. And I think there are times I I look at like some of the folks who are absolute leaders in industry and, and, you know, the originators of practices or ways of, you know, looking at the earth or designing tools that help us to understand what's going on. But there's days that they can't walk and chew gum at the same time, right? They're, they are (laughs) so (laughs) amazing and they don't have the same shoes on. So Sometimes as a coach, you have to remember they're human and they are struggling with something. They wouldn't be looking for coaching if they weren't struggling with something. And that's that's where your area of expertise comes in. They're not going to come to you and say, how do I, how do I fix my, you know, financial statements? I've screwed that up. They're not going to come to their coach and ask you to advise them on their area of expertise. So you have to get comfortable, I think, owning that your work and your your time in that field is its own area of expertise. Um, you know, I've been in this work for about 30 years. And I think about in my organization, if I had had 30 years of experience, I would be considered an honored fellow. So mm-hmm. in my mind, I sort of consider myself the honored fellow of leadership development. I don't put it on a business card, but 
that's the place I need to be because it helps me know there are things that I am an expert in that they are not. And so I think it's just a little bit of work that the coaches may need to do personally to recognize the value of their contribution and to recognize the depth of their expertise, even though it's not as a rocket scientist. Yeah. Own your expertise. I love that. Yeah. That is one of the the reasons I love this marriage of coaching and neuroscience because you have all these skills that can help someone, as you say, bridge that gap. And the neuroscience component is we're still working with another human being. And even with just a basic understanding of how the brain and nervous system operates, we can be far more effective with our coaching approach. We don't need to be an expert in the area that our coachee is an expert in at all. We just, if we, if we develop those skills of working person to person with an understanding of how people work, our biases, how to overcome some of those, um, how decision-making is, is, is made behavior change, regulating emotions, all of these things that every human being on the planet struggles with at some point or another, like you say, they could, they could be solving some crazy, I don't know, engineering or physics problem and have the wrong shoes on exactly, <laughs> or, 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 you know, mismatch socks or something, or even forget to wear socks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> We've yeah. all been there. I'm sure. <laughs> And I, I think what the coach brings is that ability to be really curious, right? To yes. to take this person who is an expert and to see them just as a person and to sort of help them take that expert mantle off so they can be human and I can be curious with them about what's going on that's making them feel uncomfortable or less than so that we can we can address that and they get to shore up their, you know, their level of comfort or their, you know, there's, there's one particular thing that they've never felt good at. Um, and they need some support in figuring out how to, how to take these tools and techniques that have helped them be successful in other areas. How do we do it for this particular area? So the genuine curiosity, the ability to ask those thought provoking questions that maybe shake that person up a little bit, right. Rattle the snow globe and see them as a person and, and, all of those kinds of things, I won't say they're unique to being a coach, but they are the bread and butter of coaching. And it is the ability to be with somebody as they figure that stuff out and to continue to be curious, not for my own sake. I'm not trying to get anything out of it. I'm curious for that person. Um, That's, I think, what is unique in the coaching relationship. I I love that you've said this and, and use the word curious as well. I think this is like, you know, if there was, if for anyone who's listening, you know, if you're not the type of adult that used to be that annoying child of wanting to ask why, 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 and you perhaps aren't aren't naturally super curious about people and the world and things and perception and and everything, uh, this is absolutely a skill to develop. Which actually leads me to my next question. If we, because this is something that I ask all the time, how do you develop? How do you develop curiosity if you don't naturally have that? Because I, I don't know what that's like personally. Um, I've never had to coach someone or train someone or teach someone to develop that. But if we had to, what would be a way of cultivating that as a skill? That's so, that's so interesting. When I think about the way that my organization talks about curiosity, we talk, when we think about leaders, that um, curiosity is one of our values of our company, but it's also one of we the things that we say is the cost of admission. Like, it's really mm-hmm. hard to teach. I can't teach you uh, to be curious. It's, it's very, very challenging um, to even think about how would you break down the components of curiosity? And I, I think honestly, I would probably lean towards trying to help somebody move into a growth mindset and to develop a growth mm-hmm. mindset. And potentially when they recognize that there's always something to learn and that we learn, even when we screw up, um, it may open up the aperture on their curiosity. But if somebody is really just sort of content to go through life knowing what they know 
and accepting everything as it comes and not not even being, you know, a little genuinely perplexed when something happens they didn't expect. That would be pretty tough, I think, mm-hmm. to try to help. But yeah, I would I would be trying to do some work around developing that perspective of continuous learning and being being able to go out and find something that you know you're either not good at at all or you've never tried and you're not good yet. Um, and uh, seeing if you could could sort of dial up the the uh, openness to curiosity a little bit. I think That's sometimes once cool. you get that spark going, it'll get it'll flame up. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually I'm reminded of um, Yark Panksepp's work, the uh, neuroscientist who uh, came up with the I think there's seven different uh, primary emotions, and one of them is well, it may not we may not consider it an emotion, but it's certainly a driver called the seeking system. And the seeking system is inherent in all of us. And uh, part of well, one of the characteristics of the seeking system is to fill a knowledge gap. So I think generally human beings are curious by nature. I think it's built into our nervous system. I think it probably varies greatly uh, from one individual to the next, but perhaps that uh, I, I love what you said about open the aperture like maybe the aperture exists, but it's just opening it mm-hmm. uh, further with something like or tools like developing a growth mindset, taking a different approach. How can I see this differently, which may then lead to, you know, perhaps building this skill a little bit more, developing it, even if it's just one little bit at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. Perhaps that's and it may be it. helping them to think through, you know, has there been a time that they were curious and it got like smacked, <laughs> right? Did they yeah, get, yeah. did they have a bad experience? Maybe they tried something and instead of being allowed to fail forward, there was, it was just shut down. And so, you know, there's a lot of people who are very risk averse and being curious is inherently risky, right? When you go, I wonder what's in there and you stick your finger in the hole, it could get bit. So there is, there's an inherent um, acceptance of risk when you're curious because you could look foolish, you could mm-hmm. succeed. And then what do you do? Uh, you could fail dramatically, but if they're, if they're very risk averse, I wonder if there's a correlation between risk averse um, behavior and lack of curiosity. Yeah. 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 There's the step. There's your next study. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we'd, we'd have to say that everybody has to have some level of interest in something. And maybe interest is a gateway to developing curiosity. Mm-hmm. How we translate that into what we were previously talking about in terms of developing it as a skill, as a coach, is something right. entirely different. Like, uh, uh, as an example, one of the well, the conversation I had with a gentleman this morning, he said, oh, look, I've spoken to a bunch of other coaching organizations and I have some sort of higher level questions about coaching. And before he started to ask ask the uh, the questions, he kind of gave a bit of context. And I just started asking him some questions about, you know, how he sees this going, you know, explain to me what's going on here a little bit more and just genuinely curious about his situation. And at the end, he said, oh, my God, like, it's so nice to have this conversation because all the organizations I talked to, all they wanted to do was basically tell me stuff. And you're the first, and we're, we're talking about coaching organizations, and you're the first person that actually asked me questions. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. Thought, Isn't that insane? Like, that's just crazy. So maybe developing this curiosity as a coach for people even working in the coaching space is something that needs to have a little bit more emphasis. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And mm. I mean, if you think about it as a coach, if you personally aren't curious, right? Mm. What what is this person about? What's driving them? How do they want to be better? What's going to be the impact of that if they do get to be better at whatever they want to get better at? You personally can demonstrate curiosity, right? Like you did. You didn't tell, you asked. Mm-hmm. And you know, people like to be asked about themselves. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. um, even just demonstrating curiosity and giving someone an example of 
what genuine curiosity looks like could be a step towards helping them to flex some of those muscles and to start to open that aperture back up. Mm-hmm. I do have one takeaway tip for coaches. If you want to develop this skill, start a podcast because <laughs> <laughs> you will very quickly find out whether you're the type of interviewer or host that likes to talk more than they like to ask questions. And perhaps if you can reflect on that, give yourself some feedback that hmm, maybe I do need to be a little bit more curious, but you'll soon find out. Like I, I love doing these podcasts because I get to find out in this case more about you and the work you're doing. And like, I'm just fascinated by it. I'm super interested in, in knowing how people are applying coaching and neuroscience. Uh, and so it's really easy for me to keep doing these because I am genuinely curious and I get a lot of enjoyment out of doing that. So perhaps, uh, yeah, start a podcast and see if uh, see if you like it. If you don't, maybe coaching isn't quite for you. Maybe you should go into <laughs> consulting or um, advising, teaching. <laughs> there you go. Yep, go get on the telling side as opposed to the asking side. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I've loved this conversation. This has been super cool. Do you have any any final thoughts for our listeners? Gosh, I should have Words I should have prepared some sort of word of wisdom, <laughs> right? Some word of wisdom. Um, yeah, well, if I would think about if I was going to give a coach advice, yeah, especially in the, in the sort of the side of the world of coaching that I work in, right. In that work-based professional slash executive leadership coaching, um, I would, I would say that you, you need to be prepared for folks to come from a lot of different directions, but they always have a goal. They always have a goal. They will come to you. And so you've got to be open to that and um and to let to watch them change it <laughs> as as your conversations evolve, that that goal often often yeah, evolves. Yeah. And I'm sure that's not unique to professional coaching, but coaching in a work environment, they they have something that they want to work on. Yeah. And, and isn't that the case? Sometimes it's it's not just moving the goalpost, but it's often sometimes changing the goal completely, or what yeah. they first came in with turns into something else entirely. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I could chat for another hour easily, but uh, we better cut it short because we're coming up on fifty fifty five minutes, I think. So this has been awesome. Thank you very much. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Next time you need someone to just ask silly questions, just give me a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. Thanks, Jen. <laughs> All right. Thanks for That's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe, leave a five-star review, and then head over to brainfirsttraininginstitute.com to join our community of coaches. And for resources and products to help you upgrade your brain and life, including interviews with leading neuroscientists and health and high-performance experts, go to mybrainfirst.com. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.